Support for Kansas City Today comes from Cleveland University, Kansas City. From its roots as a chiropractic college to new degree programs in health sciences, CUKC is educating healthcare professionals focused on next-level health. Learn more at cleveland.edu slash impact. Support also comes from Grandma's Catering. One bank teller instead of the usual five. Slow, fast food lines. Simply not enough staff. Grandma's Office Catering avoided the mass exodus with the respect, appreciation, better wages, and now health insurance. That's how Grandma continues to wow. Grandma'scatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Tuesday, February 8th. Coming up, why a new gun law in Missouri has ended up in the state Supreme Court. And how Medicaid expansion in Missouri can help people who just got out of prison. If they were taking meds, whether it be for mental or even uh, stabilizing for recovery from a substance use disorder, how to get those meds now on the outside is a huge obstacle. But first, some headlines. Missouri researchers are asking residents to report COVID-19 cases on a new phone app that alerts users about potential exposures. KCUR's Alex Smith reports. Researchers at Washington University in St. Louis say the Mo Identify app can alert people if they've come in contact with someone who tested positive for COVID-19. The technology was developed by Google and Apple, and similar apps are available in more than 25 states. Even though the information is anonymous, data scientist Philip Payne anticipates Missouri may be more resistant due to privacy concerns. It's certainly the case that the more users, the better. That, that's without a doubt. However, there's no minimum number. Even if it's a small number of individuals, uh, the impact can be substantial. Mo Identify is already being used by more than 27,000 Washington University students, staff, and faculty. The Missouri Highway Patrol is investigating after Kansas City police shot and killed a man early yesterday morning in the Blue Hills neighborhood. KCUR's Carlos Moreno has more. Police have identified the deceased as 36-year-old Sean W. Wilson of Kansas City. The Highway Patrol says that Kansas City police dispatched around 2.30 a.m. to a residence on Olive Street for a domestic disturbance call involving a child. According to police, officers found Wilson outside and he approached them with a knife. Officers say they shot Wilson after he refused to drop the weapon. Wilson's death marks the 16th homicide in Kansas City so far this year. A new survey from the Jackson County Health Department is calling for more access to menstrual products in schools. KCUR's Jody Fortino has more. The survey found that the majority of students in eastern Jackson County schools who need menstrual products can get them from a school staff member, but most can't get them on their own in restrooms. 40% of respondents to the survey said they were aware of students who said at some point they couldn't buy period supplies that they needed. The survey followed the introduction of a bill in the Missouri legislature by Democratic State Representative Martha Stevens of Boone County requiring school districts to provide period products for free to middle schools, high schools, and charter schools. Kansas biologists and wildlife enthusiasts want lawmakers to protect ornate box turtles from being collected and sold commercially. The turtles fall victim to smugglers who snatch them from the wild and sell them as exotic pets in the U.S. and internationally. Diane Glynn is a judge in Shawnee County and helps count turtles in the wild. We used to have turtles everywhere. They would be in the garden, they would be under the bushes. It was common for my husband to pick one up, bring it, show it to our daughter. We were always going out to check them. She wants future generations to enjoy the creatures, but rarely sees them anymore. A bill in the legislature would tighten restrictions on taking box turtles from their habitat. Violators could face criminal prosecution. 
The Missouri Supreme Court heard arguments yesterday about the controversial Second Amendment Preservation Act, which prevents police officers from enforcing federal gun laws. Missouri Governor Mike Parson signed it into law last June, and since then, the legislation has received widespread criticism from law enforcement in the state. Kayvon Mansouri covered yesterday's court arguments for the Midwest Newsroom, and he's here now to tell me about what happened. Hi, Kayvon. Hi, Nomeen. So first of all, can you tell me more about the Second Amendment Preservation Act? Why was this passed? Uh, the Second Amendment Preservation Act was a preemptive move by the legislation uh, as they worried about any sort of federal overreach, as they call it, uh, from uh, President Joe Biden. Uh, they basically passed this law so that federal laws can't be enforced in Missouri. And if they are enforced, uh, Missouri police can face up to a $50,000 fine if someone believes their First Amendment uh, right has been, or I'm sorry, their Second Amendment right has been violated. So why do so many law enforcement agencies and officers object to this law? Basically, police are saying this is making it uh, very difficult for them to enforce uh, certain laws and have any partnerships with federal law enforcement. That's because it can lead them uh, vulnerable to lawsuits uh, if, if, say, they were to enforce a federal law that uh, that someone may believe in, uh, infringed on their Second Amendment rights. So, for instance, the ATF, uh, who's gotten involved in the case, says that uh, they've had more than 12 law enforcement agencies and partnerships with with uh, within their agency uh, because of this law, for fear they might end up in court if they uh, continue working with them. For instance, the Missouri State Highway Patrol has stopped contributing to federal databases that the ATF and others use to solve crimes for fear that that could also land them in court. So there's just a general fear that any sort of enforcement of uh, federal gun laws could just land police and the municipalities that uh, police cover into, into court and uh, could land them with a f up to $50,000 fine. So this law itself ended up in court. Can you tell me how that happened? Yeah, St. Louis County, St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and Jackson County uh, brought the brought a lawsuit forward in Cole County Court um, to basically block the law uh, for uh, basically on the grounds that it was a unconstitutional and b hampering police work. That was blocked. Now it is being heard by the high court because of that. The constitutionality of the law is being argued, um, and uh, while uh, the attorney general's office defends uh, defends the law. So, what have the parties in the case argued? The parties in the case that are arguing against the Second Amendment Preservation Act are saying that the law violates the U.S. supremacy uh, clause. They're just basically saying they're. Uh, the law is blocking federal laws from being enforced in uh, Missouri. Um, the attorney general, the attorney general's office, is actually arguing that the court shouldn't be hearing the case yet, um, as they argue the. Basically, the parties that are arguing against the Second Amendment Preservation Act didn't bring up the constitutional argument before it made it to the Supreme Court. They're arguing that the Supreme Court shouldn't be deciding whether the law is unconstitutional or not when it hasn't been argued at a lower court yet. So Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt hailed the original court decision as a major victory for Missourians. Can you tell me more about his involvement in the case? Yeah, the Attorney General's office is defending uh, the case. They are basically the party that is arguing, uh, saying that the case shouldn't be being heard in front of the Supreme Court right now. Uh, Eric Schmidt has been a big proponent of the Second Amendment Preservation Act. He's posted about it pretty often on his social media, and uh, he's a big ally of it, and he's hoping that this, uh, this uh, case is, uh, goes their way.
And the U.S. Justice Department has weighed in on this case as well. What are the feds saying about it? The Department of Justice has basically said that this law is making it more difficult for federal agencies to enforce uh, violent crimes and other crimes in Missouri because of the lack of a partnership that's come from uh, from the Second Amendment Preservation Act. Uh, basically, the all these law enforcement agencies that are no longer working uh, with federal agencies are leading to, uh, well, they argue are leading to less crimes being solved, especially when it involves guns. The Department of Justice says that uh, in a state like Missouri, where there is a problem with violent crime, uh, partnerships between federal uh, agent, federal law enforcement agencies and local law enforcement agencies need to remain strong, and this law is hampering their ability to do that. So what's next for this case? The the court will consider the arguments and they will uh, come to a decision at some point, but they have not named a, a date when that will happen or and there are no uh, scheduled hearings as of, as of now. Kayvon Mansouri is the investigative reporter for NPR's Midwest Newsroom. Thank you, Kayvon. Thank you. With Medicaid expansion, tens of thousands of low-income Missourians are now eligible for publicly funded health insurance. That group includes people leaving prison, who often go from having basic health care while incarcerated to not having any on the outside. Sebastian Martinez Valdivia reports. In the lobby of the Reentry Opportunity Center in Columbia, soft R&B music provides a soothing soundtrack for the people passing through. Most of them are just starting the process of putting their lives together after being incarcerated. When someone comes out, they need everything. <laughs> I mean, they, they will tell you they, they need everything, and they need it now. DeMarcus Thomas Brown is the program director at the ROC. The center looks to link its clients to the many resources they might need by creating what Thomas Brown calls warm handoffs, personal connections to local organizations. We're not just telling them, hey, if you go down to VAC on Wednesdays, you can get possibly get help, we're able to give the handoffs and say, hey, so-and-so is waiting for you. Thomas Brown says one of the biggest needs for people leaving incarceration is health care. While people can typically access basic health services while incarcerated, that goes away on the outside. If they were taking meds, whether it be for mental or even uh, stabilizing for recovery from a substance use disorder, how to get those meds now on the outside is a huge obstacle. Medicaid expansion offers a new option for many, as it opens eligibility up for most Missourians making less than $17,770 a year. But being eligible for Medicaid isn't the same as being enrolled in the program. The state has done little to promote the program, and that work has largely fallen to advocates and nonprofits. Concordance in St. Louis is one group connecting people leaving prison to Medicaid, Michelle Smith is the organization's president. Just being eligible uh, when you're a, um, an individual in prison doesn't mean you're going to take advantage of it. Smith says a Medicaid application takes on average 30 to 45 days to be processed, which can be a critical time period for those leaving incarceration. If they have some type of medication, when they're released from prison, they're only released with a 30-day supply. If you can't get Medicaid eligible or see a healthcare doctor, within those 30 days, prescriptions will lapse. Smith says Concordance starts filling out applications with its clients in the final days of their sentence in order to speed up the process. She says several have already successfully enrolled. And research has found a link between access to health care, mental health care in particular, and lower rates of reoffending. So if you look at the psychiatry literature, it clearly shows that certain types of crimes are 
correlated with certain health conditions. Erkman Oslim is an economics professor at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. Oslim was lead author on a recent study that found lower rates of recidivism in states that expanded Medicaid compared to those that didn't. Oslim says there was a pronounced effect on crimes correlated with mental health and addiction specifically. This supports our hypothesis that the policy is really effective in curbing recidivism associated with crimes that are most likely committed impulsively. Lower rates of recidivism, Oslim says, benefit individuals, but also society. Fewer people reoffending means fewer fiscal costs to imprison them, and also the direct costs to victims of crime. But seeing those benefits involves actually enrolling people who are eligible for Medicaid in the program. And Missouri still has a long way to go. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. This podcast is produced by Byron Love and Trevor Grandin and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Kayvon's story about the Second Amendment Preservation Act and Sebastian's story about Medicaid expansion in Missouri, visit kcur.org, where you can find more news stories from Kansas City's NPR station. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.